If you're visiting with us this morning, our church has been focusing and is going to continue to be focused like a laser beam on one, one key question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus? That was the, that, that was the totality of the call of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, 17, we, we hear Jesus appear on the scene and his first words were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. That means whatever direction you're going, stop. Turn around. And he said, follow me. Turn and follow me. And that's an important starting point. That's the essential starting point of discipleship. If we don't stop going the direction we're going and turn around, we're never going to be able to follow Jesus because he is not the way that we are inclined to go. But, but that's only half of the call to discipleship. It's the half that we like perhaps the most. But the other half is the essential part too. For he went on to say, I want to make you fishers of men. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. And really, what we're trying to grapple with as a church, until we as disciples, not the paid staff, not the pastors, not the, not the elders, not the religious people, until every single one of us understands that one of our calls is a call to share our life in Christ with others and imitate Christ and invite others to imitate us as we're doing that. Until we get that, we have not finished that circle, that cycle of what discipleship is all about. This morning, I want to introduce a friend, Doug, come on up, a a friend that has a passion for disciple making. Doug and I go back a long ways. Doug uh, Burley and his wife, Deborah, are members of this congregation. When they come home here, when they come here, they're home, aren't you, brother? Absolutely. Doug was was, uh, the president of Young Life for a season of time. He and Deb right now are a part of a ministry near D.C. that uh, brings the love of Christ to uh, the the most powerful people in the world, honestly, all around the world. They're discreetly doing that. But there's another part of disciple-making that I know is particularly uh, dear to Doug's heart. He's been doing this for years and years. And so uh, since he's home and with us, I thought I'd ask him to share a little bit about that. It's a passion for you, isn't it, this disciple-making thing? So tell us what what the Lord has been doing in your life. Well, it's a passion and it's a privilege. You know, um, Mark quoted 1 Corinthians 11.1. One translation says, copy me, my brothers, as I copy Christ. Um, I believe this should be a part of our daily experience, not because we ought or should, but because we get to. I work on a daily basis with young people from around the world that come to the Cedars in Washington, D.C. And uh, we go through the scriptures together, and I walk with them. And uh, they go home different people. But the last 20 years, uh, my wife and I have been going regularly to the former Soviet Union where we have what we call cores. This church has supported much of this work. And it's just young people that disciple other young people in the principles of Jesus, the attributes of a disciple. Remember in the Great Commission, it says, teaching them to obey everything I I commanded you. What's that everything? You know where you'll find it? In the Gospels. The things Jesus commanded his disciples to do. And I believe that we have the privilege and the responsibility to do that as a lifestyle. Um, You know... You remember it says, go and make disciples of all nations. But Mark knows this as a Greek scholar. It really means as you are going. As you're going along the way and, and living your life, take some other people with you. Mm. Talk to them about Jesus. Read the scriptures with them. I have these young people. They're from nations all over the world. 
that are at Ivanwald and Potomac Point, the guys and girls' houses, they memorize verses. Many of them have never done that before, six to eight verses a week. And, you know, I tell them the longest 18-inch journey is from here to here. Hmm. And when we start saying those things over and over again, they begin to work their way to our hearts. Hmm. And that's where change takes place. Um, the Apostle Paul said, the things that you've heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. So I don't think that's something for the, the paid people, the, the, the pastors and so on. I think it's something that all of us have the privilege of doing. And let me suggest to you, start with one. One person that you start praying with, that you start reading the scriptures with, that you start sharing what you know and what you've heard, pass it along to them. Hmm. And after you've done that, encourage them to do the same thing with others. It's a lifestyle, friends, that all of us are privileged to be about. Yeah. I, uh, I've known Doug for a long time. We've walked together a long time. Honestly, though, it is in my recent years of ministry that I have seen afresh the thing that, that Doug has been working on all of his life. I, I feel he really has a word to speak to our church in this season as we seek to become more and more a church of disciple makers. So I am grateful for you being here. You mentioned your love for a young man. I want you to stay up here for your kid, love for kids and, and growing the, uh, their love for the Lord. Um, we have a young man that I want us to celebrate today. We have a, a veteran disciple maker. Well, we have a younger man that that has also had been called to this. Um, back in 2009, when Michael Ramsden came for the second time, uh, part of the Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and he was a uh, part of this burgeoning program that we had of Oxford Northwest Apologetics Conference. Um, one young man who was a senior at the time sitting out there was Michael Bautersa. And Michael <clears throat> was stirred in that he went on to be uh, to come, uh, graduate from Whitworth, but he has cont- continued to feel the call to be one who would proclaim Christ, who would be a disciple maker, an apologist for the Lord Jesus. And uh, I wanted uh, you to hear something from him about what his next plans are since we were a, p- a part of that. So Michael, come quickly forward. Hi thee up here quickly and... Tell us, brother, what, uh, what, come on, come on over here. What, uh, what is God calling you to do in this next chapter of your life? When I was in high school, God gave me a strong burden for the movers and shapers of secular culture. And so starting, actually, this coming Tuesday, I'll be going to Oxford, to the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, which is run by Ravi Zacharias's ministry, to study evangelism and apologetics concurrent with a master in applied theology from Oxford University. And um, Mark... You didn't give me permission to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. Um, he didn't put me up to this. I just want to say on, on the theme of discipleship, I would never be going to Oxford had it not been for older believers who took me under their wing and one-on-one discipled me. And some of those people were from this community or other communities here in Gig Harbor. And so I just hope that there will be people here who will see other young people worth watching and will want to do the same thing and disciple them to follow Jesus further. Hmm. I want to pray for both of these men. Father, I thank you for my friendship with both of these men. I thank you for the way that they have uh, touched my life and our lives. I thank you for Doug's faithfulness year after year. And, Lord, I don't suspect that we're going to know the, the fruit that has been born of his ministry until one day we stand before you in glory. And then we will, re, we will realize what you have done. 
Uh, we're grateful to be a part of that, and we thank you for his uh, guidance, his leadership, and his inspiration to us to continue to be disciple makers. And we thank you for Michael. Uh, we who know him know what a remarkable young man you have created him to be. Thank you, Lord, that he has given those gifts and passions over to you. And we pray that just as Ellis left the ACA program to come to us, that one day Michael will leave ACA and he will go someplace that will make a, a significant difference for the kingdom of Christ. We're proud of him. We love him. We pray your blessing upon him, for your protection upon him. And we pray that, our, uh, that your kingdom will be advanced in a great way because he said yes to you in this. So, Lord, lift up these two ministries, these two brothers. We thank you for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Say one more time a big thank you to these two guys, Chapel Hill. Brother. That's good stuff. Last week, Pastor Megan shared with me a a note card that she had received. It was a note of blessing from one of uh, our younger disciples here at Chapel Hill. Her name is Peyton. And I thought I'd share it with you. Dear Pastor Megan, you are such a good pastor. I'm not saying that Pastor Mark is bad. (laughs) But I'm saying that you are good. It's always such an encouragement to receive blessings like that, isn't it? This morning we turn to the most famous blessings that were ever pronounced. We call them the Beatitudes. And, and it was with these sublime words that Jesus launched a preaching ministry that would change eternity. We're going to start a little beforehand to set the context for it. Would you please open your Bibles and keep them open. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 4, verse 23, page 815 in your pew Bibles, if you need that. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, would you speak to us the truth of these words? There are people who are exactly these things this day. And I pray that you would meet us and we would know your blessing, your presence, your touch. For we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I still remember my first sermon 27 years ago. It was titled, Not One Step More. And it was based on a passage that comes out of Exodus chapter 33. They are in the wilderness at the time and Moses prays to God and he says uh, these, these words, If your presence does not go up with us, do not send us up from here. If you're not going to go with us on the journey forward, don't go from here. We, we don't even want to take another step forward. And obviously the, the point of my inaugural sermon here was that we wanted to make sure that everything we did in the coming years, however long that would be, would be Holy Spirit inspired, Holy Spirit guided and driven. I dare say that the Lord has answered our, our prayers in that respect. Today we turn to Jesus' inaugural sermon. His first sermon, at least the first one that we have recorded by Matthew. For 30 years, he'd lived in obscurity, working in his daddy's uh, carpenter shop. But then with the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus suddenly bursts on the scene, and he does so with this audacious pronouncement that we saw back in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. By the way, exactly the same message that we had heard from John. He picks up where John leaves off and then he takes it on and runs with it. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he did what John couldn't do. He said, come and follow me. Turn around from the direction you're going. Come, I will show you the way to go. Come, follow me. And immediately, as we just saw recounted, we begin to see the kingdom of heaven break through. Jesus begins to preach and teach. He travels throughout the countryside and he heals and he casts out evil spirits. He even raises people from the dead. And the more he goes, the more he does, the more these glimpses of kingdom of heaven breaking through, the more the crowds follow. They long for what he has, the power that he demonstrates, the authority that he represents like they had never seen in any of their religious teachers before. That was what was happening. And then finally one day this great crowd gathers where a bunch of us are going to be sitting in, in January on a hill that's just to the, just to the side there of the, of the Sea of Galilee. He sits down. That's what teachers did when they taught. They sat. He gathers the disciples nearby to them, but the crowds are listening in all around. And in the very first words, the very first words of his preaching ministry are these. And by the way, they were revolutionary. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the ones who are persecuted and insulted and lied to because of me. Now we know these words, don't we? And we love these words. And some of us have memorized these words. But what do they mean? What does it mean to be blessed? And, and why did Jesus start here? Of all the places he might have started, 
Why did he start his ministry here? First of all, then, what does it mean to be blessed? Blessing, we might define this way. It's the experience to experience the favor of God which results in a deep sense of well-being. That's a starting point. It's the experience of the favor of God that that results in a deep sense of well-being. Some translations say happy. I hate that translation. One of the shows we love is a show called Duck Dynasty. Any of you ever watch Duck Dynasty? Yeah, yeah, I get a lot of my uh, spiritual inspiration from that. And right there, Phil Robertson is the, the head of that clan, a Christian guy, by the way, a wonderful ministry that they have. But one of his favorite sayings is, happy, happy, happy. And uh, it's a fun saying for that show. It's a lame definition of blessedness. In fact, I I hardly know where the word happy appears or should appear in in the definition of, of Christian life, of discipleship. Happy, happy, happy. It's such a frothy, lame word. Blessedness is something much deeper than that. You've been hearing a lot from me about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've been... I've been touched by the ministry of this martyred German pastor who was killed by the Nazis. Here's what he says. Blessing means laying one's hand on something and saying, despite everything, you belong to God. Isn't that good? That ain't frothy or lame. Blessing is laying one's hand on something and saying, despite everything, you belong to God. And so there we begin to get a glimpse of what blessedness means in the Bible, what the definition of blessedness. This is what happened in the Bible when God's people were together. This is what we read happening again and again. Hand would be laid. And in that moment they would say, you belong to God. Hands would be laid and say, God is your champion. Hands would be laid and say, God loves you. Hand would be laid and God wants to use you for his kingdom. Hands would be laid and you'd say, God, you are precious to the Lord. That is the image of blessedness from Scripture. The hand of God upon you that says, I love you. I am for you. I am with you despite what the circumstances might show. That's the blessedness of God. The words of blessing would have been familiar to the people that Jesus was speaking to because it's language that they used in their liturgy. Barak. Barak means blessing. Barak Elohenu I mean, all of the liturgy of their Jewish life talked about the blessedness of God and blessing God, offering it back and forth. So that language would have been very familiar to them. It wouldn't have surprised anybody that this rabbi, this preacher coming out of Nazareth would have begun his ministry by speaking in terms of blessing. Here's what revolutionized them though. Here's what flipped their world on end. It was the people who were on the list of the blessed. It's the people who were on the list of the blessed. That, that was revolutionary. Why is that? Because at this time it was assumed that the evidence of God's blessing was wealth, health, and power. Not very different from Our perspective on the subject, by the way. Wealth, health, and power. In that time, in the time of Jesus, if you wanted to know whose God's favor was upon, whose hand God's, uh, who, whose hand God, uh, God, whose head God's hand was upon, all you needed to do was to look for the persons that were rich and 
and well off and healthy and powerful. And, and that was it. That was the example of it. And we, we, we understand then a little bit better this, this encounter that Jesus had when once he said to his disciples, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This explains why the response of the disciples was, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? If the rich man, who is obviously the blessed of God, if even the rich man has a hard time being saved, what in the world chance is there for me, a poor nothing man who is obviously not blessed by God? Do you get it? The same thing comes out when they were walking along in John chapter 9. They come upon a blind man and the disciples ask this question. So, who sinned? Remember that? Was it, the, was it this man who sinned? Or did his parents sin? I mean, obviously, God's blessing is not upon him because he's blind. So their question was, whose fault was it? Something had to be wrong, right? And Jesus' response was, neither sinned. This is going to be a chance to show the glory of God. But that rocked their world. This belief that your circumstances, your health, your wealth, your prosperity, these were indicators of God's blessing upon your life. It was so prevalent that it was almost like a Jewish form of karma. You got what you had coming to you. If God was happy with you, he would make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. If God was disfavored with you, if he was unhappy, then you would be poor and ill and powerless and looked down upon by the world. And I've got to tell you, it's not very different than the way that we believe in America today. Just listen to the preaching of some of the pastors who are the most popular ones. It's all health and wealth. You know God's favor when you have the new Mercedes in your driveway and when your bank accounts are full and your house is the biggest one. I mean, that's that. That's the way you know whether we are really blessed of God. Really? What does that say to the believers in Nigeria and Iraq and in Sudan who are being beheaded and raped and tortured for their faith? God must not favor them The way he favors American Christians. Is that how we should understand that? With all of that in mind, I want to reread a portion of that description that we have of the gathering around Jesus. News about Jesus spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him. If, if blessing meant God's hand of favor upon someone, then you could not find a less blessed crowd of people than those who were gathered on that hillside near Galilee because they were diseased and they were pained and they were possessed and they were epileptic and they were paralyzed. So according to the thinking of the time, these were the God abandoned, not the God blessed. These were the spiritual losers who were riding along on the coattails of the really holy people who were carrying the spiritual freight for the rest of the nation of Israel. And yet as Jesus looks out across that motley crew, his first ministry words are a burst of kingdom light that turns the world upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are the spiritually famished and the persecuted. Those are precious words, aren't they? But, beloved, and you need to understand this. Listen to this. The Beatitudes have been mostly misunderstood and often abused because for many, they have become the how-to list to earn God's favor. In other words, if you want to receive this blessing that Jesus talks about, then you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be mourning. You need to be meek. You need to be spiritually famished and persecuted. Will you just listen to me? That is not at all what Jesus was saying. Jesus was describing the second class citizens in the world, the the ones that the rest of the world looked down upon. And he goes down the list. The poor in spirit, literally that means the one who don't have a thing to offer spiritually. The mourners, the ones who've been abandoned by their spouse or who just buried their baby. The meek, the meek here would be the one, the mousy ones who scurry out of the way so that they are not run over by people on the sidewalk. The spiritual starved ones who hunger and thirst, they are hungering and thirsting because they got nothing spiritually. They are famished spiritually. The peacemakers, they have the most thankless job in the world. Just ask the cop who shows up on a domestic call. He's hated by both sides, right? Have you ever seen what happens to one who has a merciful heart in a business setting? They get chewed up. And the pure in heart, you mean that naive goody two-shoes who gets made fun of behind her back? And then the persecuted, like the Christians in Iraq or Nigeria or Sudan, being raped and tortured and beheaded. So really, these are your blessed ones? These are the blessed of God? This is what you must aspire to if, if you want God's blessing upon you? That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was describing what he was seeing. Jesus looked out at this crowd of broken, hopeless, rejected, spiritual nobodies. I imagine, I imagine that he looked into their eyes one at a time and in the way that only Jesus could do, he looked deep into their souls one at a time and he said, you, you who are the spiritual nobody, and, and you, whose, whose eyes are still puffy from crying last night. And you, who can't even lift your eyes because you're too timid. And, and you, you who are stuck in between two family members that you're trying to reconcile. And you, you who are made fun of because you have a belief in Jesus. You who the world views as losers. You who the the religion treats as the abandoned of God. I've got news for you. God is for you. God's blessing is upon you and you and you and you. All that the world calls losers, God adores you. He is your champion. His blessing is upon you. Not when you get to something else. Right now, in this moment, God is for the losers, the broken the desolate, the heart sick. 
That's what Jesus says. That is what I think Jesus did with the opening words of his inaugural sermon. He laid his hands on a motley crew of frightened and beaten people. And he said, guess what? Against all odds, against the diagnosis of this world, you belong to God. In other words, the Beatitudes are a description, not a prescription. You get that? They are a description, not a prescription. They were a description of the broken, hopeless people gathered around Jesus who heard for the first time that they too were the beloved of God and His hand of blessing was upon them despite all appearances to the contrary. And really, we don't want this to be a prescription for blessedness, do we? Otherwise, we will have to be spiritually devastated by grief. We will have to be a person who allows the world to tromp all over the top of them. We will have to be stuck in the middle of toxic family relationships. We will have to be humiliated for our faith in order to earn God's favor. Now, God may allow us to fall into those situations. And at times, our faith might lead us right into those dark places. But is Jesus really saying that we should aspire to them in order to receive God's blessing? So where then does that leave those of us who happen at this time to be spiritually full? Where does that leave the laughers in the crowd right now? Or the type A personalities like me? Or or those whose families happen to be a place of blessing and peace and joy? Does it mean that we cannot experience the blessing of God unless and until we lose all of those things? And the answer is no. The radical nature of Jesus' message comes through better, perhaps, if we add the word even. Even for those who feel like the world has cast you aside and God has forgotten you, I've got great news, says the Lord. It is not true. God's hand can be upon you right now, even in your emptiness, even in your grief, even in your fear, even in your timidity, even in your loneliness. You still belong to God. And by the way, he might have added, it's only a matter of time before every one of you will be on this list. Isn't that right? It's only a matter of time before every one of you will be spiritually empty, will be grieving, will be humiliated, will be persecuted. And when that time comes, God will still be your champion. This was revolutionary stuff, and it still is. As I think back over this past week, there are so many who come to mind who need to hear and believe this word of blessing. The mom who gets up five times a night to turn her son because his body doesn't work anymore. The man who, has, who was served divorce papers by the wife he adores. The man whose jawbone was cut out of his face and will never eat a solid piece of food again. The woman who is going through endless medical procedures. The man who lost his ministry because of a moral failing. The woman who has lived a lie for years and years and just got found out. And that's just a partial list from this week in this church. 
people who are reeling from the circumstances of our lives. Our, they are our empty, our sad, our frightened, our humiliated people. And to them, Jesus says, bless you. Blessed are you. Right here, right now, right in the midst of this, God is for you. God's hand is upon you. God is your champion. Three chapters from now, Jesus will conclude this sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, and he's going to say, listen, all this stuff I just taught you, you know what I expect you to do? What? Do it. I expect you to obey what I have taught you. I expect you to put into practice what I have taught you. That is what I expect of my apprentices, my imitators. That is what I expect of them. My disciples obey me or they're not my disciples. And if they don't obey me, their lives will fall down around them like a house that's built on sand. So that is what I expect of you. And that's what he will say three chapters from now. But notice that's not where he starts. That's how he ends it. This is how he starts it. He starts with grace. He starts with blessing. He says, wherever you are in life, whatever you are going through, however broken, sad, empty, despairing you might be, God is for you. God's hand is upon you. And if you believe and if you receive this blessing from God, I will help you to become the person I created you to be. Discipleship results in, leads to, ends in obedience. But it starts with my grace. So, beloved, let this word ring in your hearts forever. God is for you. Blessed are you. Father, thank you for this incredible gift of your blessing and presence and grace. Thank you that we don't have to earn your love, that we don't have to get our acts straightened up before we come to you. Thank you that you come to us first. You lead with grace and blessing. Some of us are doing pretty well right now. Our lives are full, our spirits are full, our families are good. I know there are a lot of us here today to whom this word of blessing, this promise of God's hand upon our lives is balm for battered souls. Would you make us better disciples of yours because we have received this gift? For we ask it in Jesus' name.